What's up, everybody? It's Reggie Williams, founder and CEO of Ambrosia for Heads. And with me, I have Jake Payne, our editor-in-chief. And together, this is our What's the Headline podcast. What's happening, man? Happy New Year. Yo, man. Happy New Year. Yeah, I was going to say, your uh, your beard looks like it's in, for those that tune in, it's in a really good place. I made uh, <laughs> I made the mistake. I don't know if this ever happened to you. You ever, like, trim and then keep trimming and then all of a sudden your beard's kind of gone? Yeah, I just trimmed it for the first time, and I usually let my barber take care of that. And uh, there was more in the sink than I thought, but uh, <laughs> but it, it remains intact, and I got your approval, so I guess yeah. I did okay. You know, man, I had my appointment scheduled like you. That is my like two things in this world that I love. You know, I love like a good car wash, and I love going to the barber shop, and I always get a beard trim. Um, you know, at least over the last five or so years, and my. My lady surprised me. I turned, I had a birthday since we last done this and she surprised me with a trip. So I missed my appointment and my barber is so in demand. I had to wait. So did it myself and you see what it got me. Yeah, man. Happy birthday too. How's 45 feel, dude? <laughs> man, I hope it's not that bad. Uh, it is my, it is my Larry Zonka year. It's 39. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So far yeah so far well, i so hope good. you go undefeated this year man <laughs> man i hope so i hope so for you know two weeks into the year i'm taking it so. yeah wait were you even born when when larry zonka was playing you know the funny thing i'm you know like you we're both sports fans there larry zonka correct me if i'm wrong is um he came back like later in life for one year like sort of like george foreman and he may have come back right around i was born in 84 and i think i feel like he came back somewhere in the early 80s early to got it for one year but yeah 84 uh we did a piece on the site about how that was uh, arguably the best year ever for hip-hop it was a watershed moment because i was born you know exactly <laughs> how are you though, uh, man how's uh 2023 opening up for you so far yo great man uh was in australia for the first time ever I've now hit uh, six out of seven continents. You know, I'm a dude who likes to to complete things. So I'm starting to think about, man, should I take that trip to Antarctica? But uh, we'll see. But yeah, it was great, man. It was great. That's crazy. Yeah. A girl I went to high school with was living in Antarctica for a minute. I have no desire to go and I've only been on two continents, but I'm going to keep changing that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, yo, man. Well, it's been a, a pretty active 2023 so far in hip hop news. We haven't done like a, a regular podcast in a minute. We've done thematic ones for, uh, for the last couple uh, episodes, but we got a lot to talk about. Um, but anything, um, anything you want to kick off with? You know what? I, I we won't spend time on it, but I just want to say rest in peace to Gangsta Boo. Um, it was what two years ago when we learned we lost MF Doom on New Year's Eve. And I was wearing an MF Doom hoodie yesterday. Um, you know, that that loss continues to reverberate. And 2023, even though it's nothing but a day in the year, I think we all want new energy, positive energy, especially with all the, the death and tragedy in hip hop and rap music. And getting that news on New Year's Day was rough, man. And, you know, AFH had covered her. I had met Boo once or twice at events and just would be remiss not to just start there. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, it seems to happen a lot around the holidays. Um, you know, there's never a good time for it, but definitely even more painful when lots of people are kind of shedding the old and like diving into the news. So, yeah, uh, that was real hard news, man. Really, really hard news. 
Yeah, I mean, from that, I think some good news happened. And, you know, De La Soul gave us a firm date that their first six albums will be on the DSPs, which is is massive. I've said it before on this platform. Um, my two favorite my two favorite hip hop um, groups, period, or, or any groups are Gangstar and De La Soul, and it goes back and forth. And it was summertime of 2021 that they announced that it would be coming soon. And they thought by the end of the year, somewhere in November, December, that didn't happen. And, you know, as I was just scrolling, you know, the socials, as so many of us do, uh, last week, we got word that uh, March 3rd of 2023, it all kicks off. And it looks like um, there's maybe a more intensive rollout than that. Yeah, yeah. And um we saw a release saying that they picked that day intentionally because uh, supposedly Three Feet High and Rising was released on March 3rd of 1989. Um, and so, you know, three is truly the magic number for them. Um, and I think it's kind of cool. They released the magic number actually on streaming services on Friday. So it's the first uh, daylight music from the Tommy Boy collection because they've had albums, you know, subsequent to that. The grind date and uh, the uh, anonymous nobody, yep, the um, Nike but, joint, yeah. yeah. But but their Tommy Boy catalog, which you know um, is one of the greatest runs that any group in hip hop has ever had, has never been available on DSPs. Uh, so to get that was amazing. You know that song was featured in the end credits of Spider Man No Way Home, which is gigantic. I'm sure they got an incredible check for that. But the irony is that, you know, despite the incredible promotion you get from something like that, and it's enduring because obviously it's on streaming services and, and you know, um, you know, uh, you see it outside of the, the the theater run, kids couldn't go and and find the music, you know, it's just Shazam, at least on streaming services. So huge that um, huge they're doing it. But man, it's a, it's been a, a quite a journey. Like, I, I think we should talk about how we got here, um, you know, a little bit about Daylight's legacy, you know, the whole nine. I know they're near and dear to your heart. Uh, yeah. Would you say they're top, <clears throat> they're probably one of your top two um, hip hop groups, right? Oh, hands down. Them and Gangstar yeah. and truly any group, period. Like, I, I love those guys. I've seen them in concert a ton. I've, you know, spoken to each of them over the years. And this is huge. You and I dedicated an episode in 2021 of this podcast um, which we'll we'll link to, and it it covered this, but but there's more to it than that, and I think that we continue to learn new information. Um, so the long and the short of it is, you know, De La Soul, uh, you know, Amityville, Long Island, comes into the fold under Prince Paul. Prince Paul at the time is the DJ and member of Stetsasonic, you know, a prodigy. He's the youngest guy in the group, um, and starts to branch out into his own production outside of Stet. And he finds, you know, finds the group. I think there was, you know, some high school connection going on and brings them in 1988 to his label, Tommy Boy. And as Tommy Boy was doing at the time, and let's put ourselves in 1988, you know, they are working with Queen Latifah. Um, they've got, you know, Stet. I think they're still in the mix with Africa Bambata. Um, you know, just a, a host of, of, of dope joints, you know, um, working with Uptown, different people at this point, I think they have uh, information society, you know, they're, they're making inroads and they gave him a singles deal. Um, I believe for potholes in my lawn and the, the single works, you know, and that ultimately leads to 
1989's Three Feet High and Rising. Now, that release date that you mentioned is funny. And I put allegedly in our notes because, you know, um, one of our supporters, definitely a music historian and journalist I respect, Dart Adams, has always contended that that is not the date. And Wikipedia, and it's funny, um, you know, other people have raised that question. I, I sat in on a conversation last year with Monica Lynch, who was the president of Tommy Boy at the time. And even she goes, I'm not so sure. But I love what you said. Three is the magic number. Three, three. You know, it's great. The, the point being that it's back. But Daylaw goes on from three feet high and rising, which is ultimately gold certified to release a five mic album in 91 with De La Soul is dead. And that album, just in brief. And, and when it hits the streaming. Wait, well, just uh, I want to go yeah. back. So what what is the controversy? Because nowadays, right, like, you know exactly when something comes out. It hits streaming services. Uh, you know, that date is verified. There's no question, but is is it a question of, uh, you know, maybe some copies were sold on a specific date that wasn't authorized or, you know, it was a single and not the album? Like, what's the what's do you know what the confusion is around it? I think that it's a matter and I've, I've actually listened to Dart's podcast before and his point has always been, you know, we can't let we can't rewrite history off of Wikipedia um, and, you know, he'll point to. Billboard information, one worst Tuesdays, all of this. And it's just a matter of getting the date right. As far as I know, March 3rd, 1989 was a Tuesday. But, um, you know, it's it's a reminder for other albums of just like, hey, if we're going to celebrate these dates, let's treat it like sports. Let's treat it like other aspects of history and make sure we are airtight. And I think Daylock continues to be one that um, there's a little bit of debate about. You know, maybe it was February. Maybe it was... Um, you know, something like that. So. Got it. Okay. And and I asked the guys, so Tommy Boy, and I said this in, in 21, we'll get to it in a second. Tommy Boy brought me in, in 2019 or tw- 2019, I think, um, 2018, 2019, to help speak to De La when they were originally going to reissue this. And I asked all the guys and they couldn't say for sure at that time. But, you know, De La puts out this album and, and you know, Three Feet High and Rising, much like Public Enemies, it takes a nation of of millions, much like Beastie Boys, Paul Boots, Paul's Boutique, it it ushers in a new level of sampling of instead of grabbing just like a James Brown break or, you know, a, a Joe Cocker riff or, you know, so on and so forth, There, it's, it's a series of samples. And in 1989, that didn't matter as much. I mean, you know, hip hop was coming out left and right and people were taking small and big pieces. And it really wasn't the litigious um, place that it became. Also, that album, you know, I'll use your phrase as a lean back experience. You know, you put it on and sure, there's singles and there's songs that jump out, but it's really designed to be an album. There's skits, there's characters, there's, there's you know, um, unique slang. So they do that. And at the time, you know, the mainstream media kind of portrays De La Soul as these hip hop hippies. You look and there's flowers, you know, in the artwork and the videos. These guys are not menacing. They're super approachable. So they strike back two years later with De La Soul is dead, um, kind of reframing who they are. And that album has a similar sample and skit approach, but it's a little bit more assertive of like, yo, we're not, you know, we're not, um, we're not PM Dawn. We're not, you know, don't get us confused with other aspects of this and i i've often contended that maybe the greatest hip-hop album ever made you know for me subjectively i love de la soul is dead i believe it deserved every one of those mics 
So they do that. They move on two more years later to Balloon Mind State. It might blow up, but it won't go pop. Um, and that, you know, at the same time as Tribe and Gangstar and Diggable Planets, that's a true jazz hip hop album. It's still Prince Paul, but they brought in like Maceo Parker. They brought in, there's definitely just a, a strong jazz undertone. And as I've gotten older, it's, it never seems to be the favorite in the conversation, but I think it's just as good as the first two. Um, from there, you know, three years later, they released Stakes as High, um, which, you know, our colleague Justin Hunt made a really dope uh, video essay on that releasing the same day as Nas. It was written and fracturing hip hop into two. We've seen other people discuss, um, you know, that diversion. We've covered it on the site. But that album is interesting because that album, although the group started to make it with Prince Paul, there was ultimately creative differences. He steps away. De La, Maceo in particular, really came into his own as a producer um, and started, you know, really doing it. And then they bring in Jay Dilla, who in 96, you know, is also working, you know, he'd come off of work with Mad Skills and Farside, but that year he's working with Tribe, Q-Tip extensively, and, and makes... Um, you know, title track in the remix, that's, that's insane. A lot of people would say that that's the best and Daylock continues to evolve. Um, and then after that, that's four albums deep. There's two more with Tommy Boy in the, um, at the, at the turn of the millennium, the AOI albums, which I would also agree. I mean, De La Soul has never had a weak link in my opinion, when the three of them make music together and those AOI albums, the first one we can remember, you know, had Ooh with Redman which, you know, I believe Rock Wilder produced, De La evolved into the sound. And although Tommy Boy was distributed by Warner, I would say that that label was differently suited than your Universals and your Interscopes and your Sonys at that time. And De La continues to stay in the conversation. Those albums had a lot of depth. Um, and then they came back with one more Bionics. Um, and in that time, after Bionics, Tommy Boy's catalog was sold to Warner Music. Um, I forget for the amount. And De La was in limbo for a while. I actually re recently reread an MTV article that they thought they would put out the seventh De La Soul album through Warner, through, um, I think it was even like uh, Asylum or possibly Atlantic, one of those Warner subsidiaries. And ultimately, they ended up leaving the label. Um they self-released the grind date, as you mentioned, in 2004. So you're looking at a couple more years removed. And that was put out on Sanctuary, which was Matthew Knowles, Beyonce's father's label for a minute. Um, and then they've really just changed the model. They partnered with Nike for when Nike was doing those RUN mixes. They did one with like LCD Sound System. Um, and they did one with them and De La. And it, it's basically one track that plays the whole way through. That is not on streaming services. I have the CD. Uh, downstairs but that's harder to find and then more notably in 2016 they released an album that they funded a year earlier they put up some money excuse me they put up a post and they said we need what was the what was the total was it 200,000 they wanted they wanted 110,000 110 that's yeah. right it was a weird number yeah. and, they, and they were like look we're not we're not hard up but we want to do this right we want to use proper studios pay those people involved and if you the fans show us that you want this album um we'll make it and they got over six times the amount that they asked for with some really cool perks in there i remember one because at the time i'm looking and like one was you know you can go record shopping i think with with maceo 
um, one of the guys was was giving um, to, to certain donor levels a collection of boom boxes. They had really, really cool packages in there. Um, and they put out an album in the Anonymous Nobody, which was ultimately Grammy nominated. That album featured, you know, Estelle, 2 Chainz, Snoop Dogg, Pete Rock, so on and so forth. And throughout that whole time, you know, De La has, has toured. But what came, what became really interesting is right around the time of their last album, Tommy Boy got back its catalog from Warner. And at that time, you and I, through Ambrosia for Heads, were meeting with Tommy Boy. You know, they had put out um, a Brookzill album, which Prince Paul, Ladybug Mecca, the late Don Newkirk and, and Rodrigo were all part of. Um, they put out a Sadat X album and we were supporting these things on the site. So I remember you and I, you know, going into those offices and seeing Tom, seeing Rosie, you know, seeing what they were working on. And at that time, they planned on taking their art, taking their catalog. And whereas Naughty by Nature and House of Pain and Coolio, all that stuff's on there, De La still wasn't. But Tom Silverman and his staff said, we're going to do this. And that was, you know, as an aside, they brought in me to help, you know, put together some material. So I spoke to the three members of De La, you know, Poss, Dave, and Maceo, I spoke to Prince Paul, and I spoke to Tom Silverman. And I want to tell you that this is January of 2018. I said 19, but it must have been 18. And um, I could tell that things were a little bit, you know, that De La just wasn't thrilled to go back down memory lane. And not for nothing, you know, on their albums, they would throw in little subliminal and not so subliminal disses at the label, as many artists do you know, uh, about creativity, creative control, other people having different opinions of what groups should be doing, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, right around that time, Tommy Boy makes an announcement. I think it was March of that year. We're going to put it back on streaming and De La goes public and says, we're not, we're not supporting this. And we're not supporting this because we don't feel as though we're being adequately compensated for it. And De La, the, the numbers that they were using at the time was 90% went to the label and 10% went to them. And they went public with it. Just like they used Kickstarter, and I think the most noteworthy way for hip hop, so did they with this of like, I'm going to use social media to let our fans know what's up. And out of that, a lot of people immediately called for boycotting Tommy Boy, which you and I have spoken about is one of the more, you know, revered labels of hip hop. Yeah, people were saying that uh, they were saying, uh, don't listen to the music if it's released on streaming services. Right, right. right. Yeah. Listen to the albums that we own if you want to benefit the group. And one other thing that I add, that I neglected to say is in 2014, for 24 hours, De La put their entire, entire catalog up for free download. And it was so popular that it crashed the servers that were holding it. And that included, you know, these six albums that we're talking about. De La has, has rallied against this. The guys in interviews have said, like, look, this music not being on streaming is detrimental to our legacy as well as our, you know, day-to-day, -day, you know, the money we earn. And one thing that we haven't talked about is why it's not there. Um, and the reason is, is sampling, you know, in the first place. Uh, back in 1989, like I said, things were not as litigious as they are now. So if you're going back and you're clearing a record from 1988 that has one or two samples, depending on who you sampled, you might be able to do it in such a way that all parties say, hey, we're going to make a little more money out of this. Cool, let's do it. But with De La, I forget what the number is, but it's, it's over 60, over yeah. 60 samples. Yeah. 
over 60 samples and it involves some heavy hitters like Steely Dan, like the monkey or excuse me, the turtles. Um, you know, there's stuff on there involving people that have been all previously, Yeah. All, crazy. And, you know, it, it, it was a much bigger undertaking than I think anyone realized. And that, 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 that reflects on the relationship because De La and Prince Paul say, Hey, we turned in an album. And it was the label's job to make sure that, you know, that album was safe and sound business-wise. And you guys didn't do your end, Tommy Boy. And I know that that staff might not be here anymore. And maybe things were different then. But those choices and those actions are affecting us now. And meanwhile, you know, Takes a Nation of Millions, Beastie Boys, those albums are widely available, have been re-released on vinyl, have done all these things. They can't do that. So then fast forward to, you know, 30 years later and you're butting heads and you're saying like, Hey, we want the lion's share of the revenue according to day law. And they're saying your, your non-actions or mishandling is the whole reason I'm not getting paid anyway. So that carries on until 2021. And there was a series of interviews and these are all on AFH where the guys went on sway in the morning. They went on drink champs. They spoke in depth. I mean, far more, you know, um, granular than you and I are speaking about it right now of what went wrong and how this relationship soured and why they're not satisfied. And it never went, you know, it, those renegotiations and conversations never went anywhere. And in the middle of this all, Tommy Boy again sells its catalog to Reservoir Media Group, which is, you know, a cataloging company um, that is, is led in part by, by Faith Newman, who is the same woman who signed, you know, Nas to Columbia and Sony in the early 90s. You know, yeah, one, one other issue is uh, they said they wanted ownership. Yeah, uh, that, was, that was another thing, too. Yeah, they said they wanted ownership. And that, you know, raised, you know, you and I discussed it at the time. Because on one hand, you know, you signed a contract that says this. But on another hand, they're looking and, you know, we, we've run an article. LL Cool J owns all of his masters. So at some point, you know, in his negotiations with Def Jam, they made that deal. I believe Two Chains has said the same. There's a series of artists out here that own their music, and you know, De La was asking for it and saying, "Let us handle it, and let us, you know, we should be in the position to receive the lion's share of the revenue." And those discussions continued until there was the new acquisition, and I remember where I was. I was sitting in in the car eating a slice of pizza on a hot summer day in 2021. And they hosted an Instagram live to announce that number one, after Reservoir purchased the catalog, De La owned their masters and they were in control. And, and most notably, the headline was, you know, the music is coming out by the end of the year. And that didn't happen. And, you know, and there's a whole host of other things going on in the world in 2021 and 2022. But happily, to kick things off in 23, De La announced this. And they did it in a series of Instagram posts initially the first one was for amazon music which had me scratch an eyebrow because or raise an eyebrow because amazon music has is continues to try to compete in this space um and we haven't seen exclusivity like we were five years ago where drake would put an album out on apple and somebody would put an album exclusively out on spotify and then they followed in the hours with spotify with title with all of your big dsps um so yeah i mean that's kind of where we are with things yeah, you know, you said uh, Reservoir was led by uh, is their A and R and creative for that is Faith Newman. Uh, 
who was the A&R for Illmatic. And so when I heard that she was the one kind of shepherding it, I had a lot of faith, uh, pun intended, that this was going to get done. Uh, I was glad to see I'm glad to see it happen. You know, so some of the things that must have happened for this to take place are uh, samples were cleared. Uh, but one of the things we've heard, too, is that, you know, so there were some posts by Prince Paul last year that got people excited, including us, where it was clear that he was in the studio with De La, and they talked about magic happening. And uh, now we know that, you know, that's a reference to the magic number, you know, but the speculation at the time was that they were working on brand new music and they were reunited and we're going to put out a new album. The reality is now that we've gotten this news about the, the catalog being released on DSPs is that uh, Prince Paul was actually in the studio with De La recreating some of the music. Um, there, there are some replays um, and some things that are done because just to give people context, when there's a sample, um, a sample is different than an interpolation. So a sample is you actually take a, a snippet of a record and you play that actual sound recording within your sound recording. So in that situation, you got to go to the record label and clear uh, rights for the master recording, which is the actual like um, specific version. And you have to clear rights for the copyright, which is the, the composition. So um, you can play a song like, you know, so Whitney Houston can sing the Star Spangled Banner or Marvin Gaye can sing it. Those are different versions of it. And her version is her recording. His version is his recording. But the song itself that they're singing is the composition, that's the publishing. And so you got to clear both of those things if you use an actual sample from a recording. But if you do a replay, like Dr. Dre did a lot of interpolations, he didn't use a ton of, he used, he used a lot of music from other sources, but he replayed it himself uh, in the studio. So he only had to want, clear one piece of it. So um, my sense is that there's probably still some actual recording samples in it. But a lot of it's probably replayed. And, you know, they said they challenge people to um, f find the difference. You know, it's interesting. Um, this has happened quite a bit lately. Uh, Taylor Swift, I think, has been one of the most high profile people to do it. And um, I've heard great things about the re-recordings, but people do say there is there's still a perceptible difference. So I'm, 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 I'm going to be very curious to hear this and see if we can hear it. Did you listen to the magic number and see? I did. And I couldn't, I personally couldn't spot it. And yeah, I mean, I want to give a shout out because, you know, that was something that went, I think, largely missed by some, you know, our, our friend and colleague, Will Ketchum interviewed Daylight for uh, Billboard. And at the end, they, they mentioned the possibility of replaying and Sean Sotero, another friend and colleague of ours, you know, a peer rather, um, asked the question and Scotty Hart, who's the engineer that has worked with Prince Paul for years, confirmed as much. And one thing that we saw in the studio is J-Zone, who's, you know, former MC and producer playing drums. And J-Zone, I mean, for those that know, he has modeled himself after the great 60s and 70s drummers of getting that dirty funk sound. Um, and it didn't, you know, I, I forget what the sum is, but these guys spent like 100 hours in the studio making this happen. So with the magic number, I didn't hear it at all. Um, I am somebody who eye rolls when you even though I made my joke, like you look up PM Don on Spotify, a lot of that stuff was re-recorded. The early groups, um, you know, like uh, UTFO and Treacherous 3, you look and there's re-recorded versions and I never find those to be as good. 
But to your point, you know, I think of Dre um, and, and, and true interpolation, Dre having that band of Carl Butch Small and, you know, L.A. Dre and Stan the Guitar Man, like people that could play this stuff, you know, you, you'd be hard pressed to know the difference. So I'm very optimistic. And I still do believe there's samples on here um, because it's certainly like the work that Tommy Boy had had done initially and more recently, I would imagine that holds despite the reacquisition. Yeah, uh, I want to go back and listen to the magic number carefully and compare the two. I'm not even sure that's one of the songs that where there is a replay. But when we get the whole thing, it's going to be interesting. Um, you know, so before we dive in more on this, what's your favorite Daylight album from that catalog? I would say today it's De La Soul is Dead. De La Soul is Dead. What about you? Yeah, uh, I love that. You know, man, I'm torn. Um I really like um, De La Soul is Dead, um, Stakes is High. There's songs on there like that song and The Business, which I think are top tier, like De La Catalog across the board. I think as bodies of work, my favorite two, though, are the, the AOI albums, the Art of Official, really? the first one and the second one. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah. Uh, that's heavy. Yeah. I mean, those albums, especially the second one, kind of get a little bit lost in the sauce. I feel like when the second one came out, you know, Tommy Boy was in a weird place. I don't know that they necessarily got to see that through. I'm really just happy for this. I mean, I know there's people that love to say yes, but I mean, every day last song, every remix, every rarity is on YouTube. Number one, I don't believe that those guys are getting paid for that because there hasn't been, you know, a secured digital copyright. You may know more than I do. Yeah, artists get paid for, for music on YouTube, for sure. It's a lower royalty rate than uh, what's what you get on Spotify or Apple, but they're, they're definitely paid. No, but I mean, like, typically, you'll know when it's an official upload. And I know there's, like, if I listen to everybody, you know, loves the sunshine by Roy Ayers, and it's unofficial account puts it up, Roy Ayers team can claim that money. Like, I know yeah, that they claim it. Yeah, it's 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 algorithmic now. So yeah, it's it's usually claimed automatically. Um, you know, the the algorithm can recognize it, and then the 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 copyright holder gets paid. So but I've often I'm not wondered, sure it made its way to Dela though, right? Exactly. It's, it's probably and, still at the record company. And I think it was 2017. You and I, like Tommy Boy, put up all the Dela music on YouTube because YouTube is often like the safest space for that. And you know, still, if I'm driving in my car and I'm listening to music it's a giant pain in the ass to, you know, try to try to create the equivalent of streaming an album in high quality sound, relatively speaking off of like versus having everything volumized and cataloged. So I'm super excited with this for the same reasons you said of people, you know, that might experience a song in a film or in a commercial have the opportunity to hear this music. I think there's a lot of people that, because at a certain point, I remember 10, 15 years ago, you could walk into the record store and still find new copies of Balloon Mind State. All of that stuff is out of print. I have an uncle that I trade music with that has never heard these classic albums because I'm like, yo, it's not worth me spending $40 on eBay to send you this album. Like that's taxing. Um, so now it's it's all gonna be there and I'm really excited. And like you, I'm eager to see if I can spot a comparison. Yeah, and the the other thing uh, besides the ease of use, you know, that you don't get on YouTube, that you do get on DSPs, is the power of the algorithms. You know, those algorithms uh, really influence what most people listen to. A lot of people 
just will either go to the recommended playlists or um, you know they'll they'll do a radio station based on a song that they played and stuff will come up and uh, that'll lead them to finding new music that that they like. Um, and so Daylight is going to be a part of that now. And, and I'm, you know, I'm going to be curious to see how it goes. Generally, most catalog artists, though, don't have a ton of streams because, you know, the streaming uh, platforms are dominated by current music. But um, I do think this is going to allow an entire generation that may not have been exposed to Daylight to to get to witness that great music. Yeah, and I disagree a little bit. I mean, at this point, there's enough um, legacy playlists, too, and there's enough you know, stuff out there. I look at the streaming numbers of, of your gang stars and your outcasts and your mob deeps and your tribes and they're sizable. They, I mean, they are especially, and I, I know that some of that stuff is still political of like, you know, there are people that work for these major companies that know who the curators are and they make sure they're aware of things. You look at a group like the Jungle Brothers and they don't necessarily get that representation and they were, you know, predominantly independent and De La has been historically more, I mean, especially with a limited catalog, more like the JBs than Tribe, you know, just in terms of their exposure on a Spotify. I really hope that this changes things. And, you know, I know that De La, you know, it was evident in 2016 with that album. I know that they can make great music today. Um, there's a song I heard in the tuck that really blew me away. I won't say any more than that. And I, I'm glad that they've waited so let, let's get all this stuff up. Let's boost the numbers, get the algorithm up. And then when we put something out, watch out. And what was cool is, I think it was Poss said, like, we would love to work with Prince Paul again. Like, we want to do that. But first, it's about getting these 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 boxes in a row you know these ducks in a yeah row, so yeah i mean they're sizable for sure right but they're they're nothing compared to like what the current artists are doing so like um when you take tribe tribes got their their highest stream song is 222 million can i kick it next up is electric relaxation 120 million and then there's none above a hundred million, right? Um, those are obviously fantastic numbers. But then when you compare it to say like a J. Cole, um, who, you know, I'd say um is obviously a high, high selling artist, but it's not like in the Drake uh future level. Um, you know, someone like him, his top stream song is uh 1.5 billion. And that's no role models. Uh, Wet Dreams is 875 million. Middle Child is is almost a billion. Uh, he's got several others that are over, you know, at or above 500 million. So, in terms of scale, like just releasing your music now is such a like of the moment culture. But there's no doubt this is going to be hugely beneficial for them. Yeah, I think it'll make. I honestly believe it'll make hip hop better too. There are so many people out here that we see influenced by the greats and. You know, De La is not unlike a great artist that never had radio exposure. You know, these these artists that, you know, I think of markets that aren't New York or L.A. that, you know, made phenomenal music, but might not have been ignored. That may have been ignored in the early 90s or the early 2000s, you know, and De La is getting that. And I just couldn't be happier. Um, yeah, it's an exciting day. And I'm curious, too, because there was a gang of remixes. There's a whole host of stuff. And that's, you know, shout out to Dayla for that. But Tommy Boy was a big purveyor of record buying consumers. And, you know, I hope that this doesn't end with just these six albums because there's Dayla has a live album. You know, there's a host of things that over time I think could be really fun for fans. And again, 
I'm glad that Faith Newman is there because she knows quite well, having worked at these labels and been ahead her whole life, that, you know, you can make that experience fun in the 2020s. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the reasons why De La has endured as long as it has is that they really launched an entire movement. You know, you alluded to kind of the splinter that happened the day that uh, Stakes is High was released with It Was Written. But before that, you know, when Three Feet High and Rising was was released, they represented a completely different look and sound for hip hop. You know, so you had your public enemies, your LLs, your BDPs, your Ice T's, your Run DMCs, and folks like that. And uh, there was a distinct kind of cool and swagger and edge to those guys. Dela were among the first to come out and just be really laid back and casual and fun. And, you know, their, their, st- their, their style was different musically, um, fashion-wise, uh, completely different. Um, they ushered in the, the so-called daisy age of hip-hop. And it wasn't just them. They brought an entire kind of collective that formed uh, around them um, and that they collaborated with. And that consisted of, obviously, a tribe called Quest, when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Uh, Queen Latifah, Chi Ali, uh, as part of Native Native Tongues, Jungle Brothers, and Black Sheep. And um, Black Sheep has also been in the news this week um, for um, some some challenges they've had with the record business too. Um, you know, like Dela, they feel like they've been underpaid, uh, but they filed um, a lawsuit that is an absolute monster and could literally change the entire record business. Um, they're suing Universal Music Group for $750 million in unpaid royalties. And that is an astronomical number. And most people would say, well, how is that remotely possible? How could, you know, Black, Street's music, Black Sheep's music have generated $750 million? But um, it's actually much more complicated than that. Um, this is actually a class action that Black Sheep is um, filing on behalf of themselves and, and other artists who they um, believe have been impacted. So we want to talk about this a little bit because if this ruling goes in their favor, uh, I think it'll fundamentally change the the recording industry or at least uh, cripple uh, the two biggest players, um, that being Universal Music Group and possibly Sony. Uh, the backstory is, is that um, those two labels, label groups, own a portion of Spotify. Um, it is around, uh, let's see, I think it's, yeah, it's um, 2.35% for Sony and 3.5% for uh, Spotify. So back in the day, um, 
Wait, percent for Sony, you meant for UMG? For UMG, for UMG. Uh, yeah, 3.5% for UMG, um, both in Spotify. So um, what, what Black Sheep is accusing UMG of doing is uh, taking equity in exchange for lower, lower royalty rates and then also not sharing the value of that equity. Um, so in the claim, it says in the mid-2000s, Universal struck an undisclosed sweetheart deal with Spotify, whereby Universal agreed to accept substantially lower royalty payments on artist's behalf in exchange for equity stake in Spotify, then a fledgling streaming service. Yet rather than distribute to artists their 50% of Spotify stock or pay artists their true and accurate royalty payments, for years, Universal shortchanged artists and deprived plaintiffs and class members of the full royalty payments they were owed under Universal's contracts. So, um, I want to talk about this, you know, uh, one of the interesting things is that older recording agreements provided for sales of physical copies. Um, so, you know, CDs, cassettes, vinyl, and royalty payments were made of, of that. They did contemplate or think about the possibility of other, other ways of distributing music, but it was really kind of a catch-all. Which is yeah. why, I don't mean to interrupt, but just yeah. to bring it full circle, that's why whenever it was, 2018, 2019, Dayla and Tommy Boy were like, when they were negotiating terms, and Dayla was like, we never did this for digital, and you're saying 90-10 now? That's Exactly. Yeah, exactly. continue. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, royalty ranges, 90-10 is like 10% is very low. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that, that's usually reflective of your first contract. And, um, you know, what happens often is that artists will have a successful record and go back and renegotiate the contract and get their royalty range into the 13, 14%. You know, some of the, the super high ones could be in a 20 to 25% range, like for your, your mega stars, like a Michael Jackson or Madonna at the time. But um, 10% is very low. Um, but whatever the percentage is, the artist is paid on that. You know, I, I won't get into, th- there's all sorts of other stuff to kind of like screw the artist out of money. Um, they get an advance um, ahead of getting paid royalties, but that advance is designed to cover their uh, recording um, costs, their music video costs, transportation, lodging, like whatever you can think of. And then they have to recoup, meaning pay back that advance before they start to get royalties. And the trick is that you don't recoup based on the full amount coming in. So if you generate a million dollars, that doesn't go toward the $250,000 advance, hypothetically. Instead, that you recoup out of the royalty that would have been paid to you. So if you get 10% and you do a million dollars in sales, you've only um, gotten $100,000 in royalties that would be applied to that $250,000 advance. That makes to sense. Use, to use brass tacks, just as an aside, we did a story one time on, on the Fugees for their second album, The Score, where they took basically no advance. So that way, when that album marched its way to, you know, millions upon millions, the numbers disputed, they cashed out right away because they didn't have an advance to pay back. Well, they cashed out right away after cost. You yeah. still got to pay the cost. But uh, but the costs are being paid from the entire pool instead of just from their small royalty pool. Um, so, um, well, actually, and the costs are still being paid through their royalties, but th- there's no advance on top of that. So, yeah. Gotcha. Um, but um, so that that means that uh, you know, so so black. Sh- so, but the way they did it was that um, 
you got your royalties for actual physical sales for things that they they knew existed at the time but often for new technologies or like the catch-all for new ways of disseminating music they would say that um, artists would and and record companies would split that 50 50 uh, of the net profit so after costs are recouped they would then start to split uh, at 50 50 after that okay. um so what so what Black Sheep is saying then with this lawsuit is that the equity that they have in Spotify should be should count toward that 50-50 net profit because that was compensation in exchange for uh, the music rights. And uh, that was never, ever distributed to artists. And so Black Sheep is not saying that they're owed $750 million themselves. They're saying that, um, and, and let me tell you where the $750 million comes from. So if UMG, so Spotify now is valued at roughly $17.6 billion. That's of as of January. You know, stock fluctuates. It was, I think, as high as $32 billion at some point when their stock was a little bit higher. But right now it's at about $17.6 billion. Um, that makes UMG's stake with that 3.5% um, at worth um, uh, roughly $617 million. My guess is that when the lawsuit was filed, um, Spotify stock was higher and their valuation was higher. And so the $750 billion was based on the valuation at the time of filing. Um, and But, you know, that's that's where that number comes from. And Black Sheep is saying that, um, and the way streaming royalties work is that, um, you know, these label groups, Universal Music Group, Sony, Warner, Independence, um, all have different market share. And um, right now, Sony's uh, universal market share is, I think, um, is 37.5%. It's the biggest music group in the entire industry. And so um, when music is played, uh, it's, it's, it's paid proportionate to how, it's, how many streams each individual artist has. Yeah. So, uh, you know, to keep it simple, if you got J. Cole, Kendrick, and um and uh future um and each are doing and, and you know j cole drake has got 50 percent of the place he's going to get 50 percent of the music kendrick's got 25 percent. he's going to get 25 percent, and so forth so black sheep would get a percentage of that 750 billion uh, million dollars uh they wouldn't get the entire amount and it would likely be um, a very small amount but the the reality is is that if they were to win this lawsuit, um, then an entire class uh, would 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 benefit from this. So anybody who has a contract like that, which in truth is probably every single artist that was signed um, prior to when streaming launched and they started to actually address it specifically in records. Through Sony or UMG. Through Sony, UMG, and Warner and every other label because you know, most of these record company agreements were basically the same, you know. The language is a little bit different, but conceptually the same rights were granted in the same economic terms. And so this means that um, a huge portion of artists, you know, pr probably any artist who was signed prior to, let's say, 2000, 2002, is going to, and who's on a streaming service now, would then benefit, would be a part of the class who could benefit from this lawsuit. So it, it it's an enormous amount of money. And uh, could take, you know, if it's, if it's, if, so, um, you know, that, that number 
that $750 million would then be spread out across, you know, X amount of artists, but that would be a huge, huge hit to the record business. Two questions for you. And, and, you know, and you're not saying it here, but, but I mean, you're a lawyer, you know, you, you have experience um, in all of this and more specifically an entertainment lawyer. Um, is there any, for, for bringing a class action suit to the table, is there any reward for somebody doing that? You know what I mean? In addition to, cause you know, I, I'm sure like you, I've won class actions for a Volkswagen recall and, and this and that 1-800 contacts, but you know, for somebody who's actually doing it, is there, is there a little extra they get from making that happen? For the, 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 the people who uh, form the class you're saying? Yeah. That, um, you know, sometimes I, I, I think that's okay, but I think generally it's, it's a portion just uh, it's, it's done proportionate to uh, the class affected. So, you know, like you said, you get it for like a seatbelt or sometimes if you took a medication or, you know, if you got a loan or, you know, whatever, we get these mailings and they say that you could be a beneficiary and it's usually a small amount of money for, for that one individual. But again, across several people and, uh, you know, a lot of time, it, it's a substantial amount of money and um, would be, I think, pretty crippling for um, a UMG or a Sony. It wouldn't put them out of business, but it would be a huge, huge hit to their bottom line. Why do you think this existed so long? Um, I mean, shout out to Drez, shout out to Mr. Long. I mean, Black Sheep put out two albums in the major label system. There are artists that you would think would have a lot more skin in the game. Why do you think that it, 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 it's these two guys that heads like you and I and our listeners, you know, know and admire, like, do you know any more on that? No, it's really, really curious because again, this impacts like so many artists, thousands upon thousands of artists, anyone who signed a recording agreement prior to that, you know, 2000, 2002 period when the agreement started to change why was it Black Sheep? I don't know. You know, um, I'm sure it's driven by their lawyer who, um, you know, took a look at the agreement and thought about it and was like, hey, you know, listen, this is this is uh, something that I th so it's creative. I think there's um, definitely merit there uh, that should be, um, you know, that 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 should be investigated, you know, via trial, um, you know, because that, that's a legitimate question. Um it is compensation in exchange for it. And so uh, you know, I think a court could rule that. And uh, I, I think that, that it could be a strong case. So it's probably driven by their lawyer. Uh, and I'd, I'd be curious as to what sparked the idea for them. It's great to see. I mean, you know, and, and this isn't something that originated, you know, off of an Instagram page, you know, Rolling Stone Billboard has reported on this, you know, Drez, you know, I forget he's, he's, there's a, a slang that he's used for himself as the genius. And you see that certainly here, I remember speaking to him over 20 years ago when Kia ran those commercials. I don't know if you remember them. I want to say it was the chipmunks driving and they played the choice is yours in it. Yeah. And I remember being naive at the time. I mean, in my teens or early twenties and being like Drez that had, that's a great look for the group. He was like, I haven't made a dollar off of it, but I'm going to look into it. And they took every action and I don't know where that landed. But this is very much a group that they were signed to Mercury Records, which I think was, I guess, part of UMG or part of Sony, that, you know, he's still here. He put out an album last year. They even endured in the fact, just like De La, they're, they're Native Tongues brothers. They are, you know, together conquering the bigger powers that be, you know, or at least attempting to.
Yeah. So the native tongues have been reinstated and oh. are uh, taking down, uh, taking down the industry and in, in or redefining the industry in the meantime. Um, so, Facts. yeah, between Daylaw and, and Black Sheep, it's been a really, really big uh, week for native tongues. Absolutely. Shout way. out, shout out to Moni Love and Beat Nuts and anyone that we may have forgot that was part of the oh, leaders of the new school. Yeah, for that bigger movement. I mean, an incredible, incredible group. So since we're speaking about legalities, I won't dive into it as much because unlike this, it's not an it's it's a dead issue. But uh, I don't know if you saw this, but during last week, as they were, you know, trying to vote in um, Kevin McCarthy, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, a very, very uh, polarizing politician used still Dre, the instrumental by Dr. Dre in a social media video. And she was promptly met with a cease and desist by the good doctor and his legal team. And she responded in kind that, you know, I only use the instrumental and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and she got a dig in too, saying, you know, while she appreciates his melodies, she would never condone Dre's rapping of drug use and thug life and, you know, his his history of, of off the mic transgressions. Um <laughs> But well, first of all, like, do you think she knew the song? She had to have known the song, right? I would imagine so. Yeah, she didn't just randomly pull that record, like, um, right? Yeah. So clearly, she's a fan, right? And um, she used it. She used it at a point to, I think, when they thought they were going to make the hold on the speaker. Like she thought, like she was, she was flexing. She you was know, contextual. She, it was contextual. It was contextual. Okay. And, and Dre, you know, and, and you and I did a whole episode after the Super Bowl last year um, in regards to whether or not Eminem kneeled during that performance and his history of political activism, you know, Dre has, I think, an, an undercovered history of political activism as well. He pointed the fact that he was not okay with somebody as hateful and polarizing you know, divisive using his music, which I thought was interesting. I mean, over the years, you know, we've seen that. I, Bruce Springsteen, I think it was him that really had a problem with Ronald Reagan using Born in the USA as a campaign song. And, you know, Neil Young, we've seen a host of other people say, do not use my music for your campaigning. But it was interesting to see. And the story ends with the video being pulled. Um, she got her dig in at Dre. But uh, yeah, he, I think he may have gotten the last laugh. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be an interesting one to watch. And Dre's in the news for um, some other stuff, too. You want to break that down? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about the Tommy Boy catalog, and we're talking about, you know, a, a potential sweetheart deal that Spotify made back in the day. You know, Dre's catalog is interesting. Here we are talking about ownership. And there are reports that Dre is selling his catalog to Universal Music um, and a company called Shamrock for a reported $200 million dollars. I've seen another figure that they were saying as much as 250. Um, this is much, very much a deal, I think, that is still being sorted. But uh, it does include two albums. Um, they did not specify which. And we can say that Dre has put out, uh, by my count, three albums in a compilation. You know, he's got, you know, The Chronic 2001 and, and the 2015 Compton album. Um, and it also includes a stake of all of his songwriting. So, you know, Dre does something with... And you don't count the, the first compilation? Uh, with the Aftermath? Yeah. I have a feeling on paper that... I mean, I'm sure that's part of the deal, but when I was reading, you know, these broad terms, I'm like, they wouldn't call that an album, I bet. Because Dre, you know, was really only on one or two songs on there. He only produced a handful of them. 
that was a label compilation. But I'm curious because one of the things that I learned out of this reporting is that Dre is getting back um, the the master rights to the chronic. And we had reported years ago um, that Dre had won the digital rights. The same thing that we're talking about, you know, that album um, as Death Row had changed hands a number of times since uh, bankruptcy. Dre had won that back, but there is a publishing issue in question from what I've read. You know, I don't think that that um, Dre necessarily owns all the publishing to that album. So that might not be one of the two albums, or maybe it is. And because it's not in possession yet, it's in transit. That might, you know, that might be why the numbers aren't speculated. But I think it's interesting. You know, we've seen Timberland, we've seen Bob Dylan, we've seen um what are some of the artists that have recently you know been selling out their catalogs like that uh it's been going on for a long time i think david Bowie was one of the first to do it um you know um the beatles did it and you know inf infamously michael jackson outbid paul mccartney for uh, the beatles catalog which was uh you know pretty hilarious uh, a lot of times, though, it's for the publishing. Um, you know, this sounds like it's for the recordings uh, and publishing. Or do you, do you know the the terms of it? That I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure because there's pieces that they that that they get that that are Dre's. So you know, I think of you know big hit records from Mary J. Blige or you know Gwen Stefani or you know some of those non non you know things that he produced or was part of Blackstreet. You know how that ties in. It's a little bit vague at this point. But for a guy that we've already thought to be, you know, an official billionaire or close to the New York Post, you know, estimates Dre at, at 850 um, million. It's interesting that he would that he would do this. You know, um, it just makes you makes you wonder uh, is is a bird in the hand worth more than, you know, ownership over time? Yeah, um, I mean, for two albums, 200 million dollars is a lot of money. Um, so, you know, he's still got his aftermath catalog of Eminem and Kendrick and 50 plus, um, you know, he's, yeah, he's got, he's got a lot in the chamber still. So, you know, um, you know, it's interesting. Um, I agree. Ownership a lot of times is what I would prefer. Um, and especially if you got the kind of cash that it sounds like Dre has, but you know, that that $200 million for two albums sounds like a lot to me. So, you know. Yeah. And I mean, I'm curious, does what we do with music as fans, is that value scaling down? You know, now we know what a stream costs. We know, you know, all of these different licensing deals are probably not what they were in another time. Do you think that the value of ownership, you know, as an idea is different now than it was 15 years ago? I do because there, there was a lot less music created before. And so you got a lot more use out of music over time. You know, you point out the, the black sheep use in the commercial and things like that. Nowadays it's so ubiquitous and there's so much, I think the shelf life for music is much, much shorter. You know, yeah. there's always the new thing and uh, it's also being consumed very differently. You know, so TikTok is one of the primary drivers of music consumption now. And that's like 15, 30 second snippets very few people are listening to albums. Most of the album tallies, quote unquote, that we see um, in these first week sales are streams of the entire project. So it could be, you know, 90% of people are streaming the, the, the single and then only a few people are getting to the album cuts, but it still all counts as the album, which is why sometimes we see singles uh, that were released before added on to an album because it inflates the number of album um, sales. Like the hard part five, right? 
I wasn't going to name any names, but you did. <laughs> <laughs> I will neither confirm nor, nor, uh, deny. <laughs> nor deny. Um, so, yeah, um, you know, so I, I don't think that uh, ownership has the same value that it did before. Now, the exception is when you do have that song that penetrates um, pause um, and, you know, is 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 lasting um that is when you know something becomes super super valuable you know like yeah uh, we talked about marvin Gaye earlier but just think about like um you know you're all i need or you know what's going on and songs that are still played 40 50 years later at weddings and you know and you know a lot of music played at, at ball games and things like that that's when ownership is really really meaningful and um you know, but let's think about Dre specifically, though. Um, do we think that the chronic, we still hear nothing but a G thing pretty regular, regularly, right? Not on DSPs right now, but yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you still hear it. It's it's big. And that I think that song has not unlocked its full potential because people were always leery of its previous holders, you know? Yeah. I think that's true of, of a lot of Dre's, you know, early stuff. I mean, I remember when Chrysler, you know, had him in a commercial and, you know, some of his aftermath stuff, but I'm curious about this. And they did say one thing that I didn't, it includes Dre's NWA stake too, which it does. Okay. Well, I mean, after police, we hear a lot, um, clearly still Dre is relevant. Um, I, I think, uh, there's a fair amount of Dre music that has stood the test of time. And, you know, we just saw the Super Bowl halftime. And so I'm sure that reignited the catalog too. So yeah, man, um, um, he is one of those rare ones, which is why the two hundred million is, is is justified. So uh, you know, just as we mentioned, Dre, one of the things we covered on the site is a close um, associate of his, Layla, also passed away. Um, Layla, heads may know, he was briefly referenced in the Straight Outta Compton film, but is one of those guys um, that Dre had produced in the mid '80s. At the same time, he was with World Class Wrecking Crew. And Layla later joins the Ruthless Fold um, to be, you know, there's a photo on our site of, of him with NWA and Chuck D in the DOC. But Layla was kind of that songwriter and producer next in line after Dre. And he came there to help above the law. His cousin Gomak was one of the members of the group and then goes on to write, you know, uh, songs for Michelle and other people. And allegedly, uh, this has been reported numerous places, Layla produced at least the basis for the California Love remix, the one that doesn't have the Joe Cocker sample, but has the clear sample. It ended up on, um, I believe that's the one that's on All Eyes on Me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, rest in peace. I, I don't know the cause of death. We still don't know with Gangsta Boo, but I'd be remiss not to say that. But um and just, just one other note, as we talk about health, um, we are wishing a speedy recovery to Boldy James. We learned this weekend uh, that he was in a car accident in Detroit, where he's from, um, was in critical care through much of last week, and then his, his family and team let the public know he's now out of critical condition. But Boldy is one of those artists that has been, you know, truly getting to the next plateau of his career all the time now, especially over the last three years, and um, definitely somebody who's on an upward trajectory. So wishing uh, wishing him the best. It's scary out there. 
Yeah, he's one of my favorites of the last several years. You know, when he uh, started working with Alchemist and, you know, his Griselda stint, like, I think he reached a whole different level. And, um, you know, he's put out several albums. He's, he's, been, he's been putting out two or three projects a year for the last several years and just like consistent quality. So I am glad that he is in recovery and out of critical condition, uh, but sounds like he's going to have a pretty long recovery. So, uh, you know, definitely wish all the best to him. So uh, there's some, some good news. Um, you know, Slick Rick is getting a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. Um you know, it's interesting. So this has happened recently over uh, the last few years. Public Enemy got one. Um, do, do you remember who else? Uh, Grandmaster Flash from the Furious Five. Yeah. Um, Salt and Pepper, I believe, um, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, and, and, I, and there's one other. It might have been Run DMC, I want to say. So um, there, there's, you know, it's it's fantastic that this happens. Um, it's kind of bittersweet because these are all people who... Uh, likely did not receive a Grammy when they were, were releasing music that was definitely Grammy worthy. And so this is almost kind of a make good. So I guess better late than never. But, uh, you know, we, we t talked a month or so ago about the the snubs like the JIDs and with Busta Rhymes a couple of years ago and so forth. I don't think it ever fully removes that sting of not getting uh, the proper recognition at real time. But it's fantastic that Slick Rick is getting this. What do you think drives the timing of it? You know, it, it's weird to me because there's no, it's not like uh, something newsworthy happened uh, for any of these artists. They, it's just like, you know, just pick a, a name out of a hat and like, this is the person we're going to go with this year. What do, what do you think motivates it? Yeah. And those names I said are exactly who's received it before. It's interesting because on one hand, you know, we continue to get closer and closer. Like Rick's debut album is 88. Now, mind you, the show had been out you know, three years before that. But it's interesting because we're not still covering all of the first wave pioneers. We're starting to move into second wave. And, you know, I don't see any, um, I guess, 88, what is that now? Uh, 35, 35 years for 23. I don't know. I don't know. But I do 100% believe Slick Rick deserves it. I think it's really cool um, to see. This is the first time we've seen a solo artist get it from the Grammys. I think we see that a lot, you know, with the BET, you know, Icon Award and, and different places. I'm happy for Rick. Um, but yeah, it was a bit of a puzzler for me as well. Yeah. Uh, but awesome. One of the pioneers of storytelling rap, um, you know, certainly one of the best to do it. I don't think the IC gets enough credit for that either. You know, six in the morning was incredible. Um, uh, same with uh, Schoolie D, you know, uh, PSK was, uh, you know, a uh, great story too. So Dana Dane, I mean, there's so yeah. many of them, but I mean, Looks we are, like Rick, you know, elevated it to an art form and is known as the the storyteller. So yeah, yeah. he is, man. I mean, yeah, it's, it's absolutely. And, and I do think, you know, our colleague, Justin Hunt made a point, you know, that this does, whether officially or unofficially coincide with hip hop 50 and, I'm glad that there's representation this year. Uh, you know, Slick Rick, everything about him is hip hop, the way he dresses, the way he talks, the way he moves. So I think it's a I think it's a win. And it's I hope uh, hope that part, you know, is televised. I'll be curious to see next month. Yeah, for sure. Well, there has also been some new music uh, that, that surfaced. Um, 
I got uh, I, I got wind of this, um, you know, that that Sky Zoo was releasing uh, an album called The Mind of a Saint and that it was going to be based on the show Snowfall. Um, but I didn't listen to it until a couple until Saturday it dropped on Friday. And I started listening and I'm hearing snippets of Franklin Saint talking and I'm starting to understand. And then I go back and read uh, the full concept. But Sky basically created an entire album um, that is from the perspective of Franklin Saint, who is the main character on Snowfall. Snowfall is a show that's loosely based on um, how the CIA flooded L.A. with with crack back in the 80s in order to raise funds for the um um, for the Iran, for the uh, Nicaraguans, the Iran Contra um, um, exchange for weapons. So, um, Sky something Zoo, I learned about through hip hop, by the way. But continue. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it sounds crazy, and you know, it sounds fiction. But this is stranger than fiction, and it was really, it, it really happened. But it's I feel like Paris on. put me on. Yeah, but keep going. Yeah, now. yeah. So. Um, so Sky not only is um, assuming the character and his mindset and characteristics, but he's also delving into like specific plot points and storylines and discussing, um, you know, what what Franklin is thinking in these situations, and he's you know doing obviously you know uh, in a way that is based on rhyming and and you know rap structure. So just a massive undertaking, and you know we've seen people do this before, like Jay-Z did it with American Gangster. Uh, but but I don't recall him assuming the, the persona of Frank Lucas. I think it was just music inspired by it. And it was Jay kind of rapping, you know, influenced by by the movie. But to assume the full character, I think is it, really, really dope. Musically is phenomenal, produced by the other guys. But have, have you gotten a chance to check it out? I have. I've listened to it now five times. It's definitely, I just, we were just talking about this at the end of 2022. Um, like every year I start a list of the great albums and this was the first one I got to put in and shout out to Sky and, and sort of like to, to finish a point you were making, like with Jay and American Gangster, I think, you know, that character and the persona, at least that Jay was leaning into early in his career for those first 10 or 15 years up till 27, 2007, there's an overlap there. For, for Sky and this character, and he was actually talking about this over the weekend on Twitter quite adamantly for anyone that confused it, these are very different people. I mean, Sky has never been, you know, uh, what I would call a, a Coke spitting, you know, a Coke MC. He doesn't do Coke rap. and But he seamlessly created this narrative. And I think even, so full disclosure, I am not, I've seen a few episodes of Snowfall. It's one of the things I plan on doing, you know, in the, the lull of this winter. I still could appreciate this album enough to keep coming back to it. I think the production is phenomenal. I think there's jewels of wisdom there. And even if you've not seen the show, it is a great, you know, personification of a character. And I applaud Sky. And he's he's done these things before. Let's not forget he did the uh, he did a third friend or foe, like taking on the son of the guy that Jay killed in Friend or Foe too. Like Sky is an imaginative, cinematic dude. And this album really, really holds up. And I've been a fan of the other guys for some time. They've worked together before, you know, on Lucy's and stuff like that. And this is um, something to check out. And if I would recommend the two joints you put on our playlist, actually, to start, check those out and then and swing over to the album. 
Yeah, you know, his last album was All the Brilliant Things. Um, one, one of my favorite albums that year. We had the pleasure of interviewing him. You can find that, um, you know, on our YouTube page. Uh, but that one was all about gentrification. And interestingly, he had I Was Supposed to Be a Trap Rapper was one of the songs on that. And so, you know, he gets to rap about the trap um, now um, via a Franklin Saint uh, and do it artfully. But yeah, really dope. Yeah, and I mean... I think that he's one of those guys, not unlike Kendrick. I mean, if you listen to Sky Zoo, and I have been doing that for almost 20 years now, he's definitely somebody who grew up in an environment where he was paying a lot of attention to what's going around him. So on one hand, it's not the character that we're used to hearing, but it's not a reach either. Like, he gets this stuff. Um, so yeah, great, great album. The other new music that I'll talk about is Black Thought. You know, an artist just like Sky. Sky has been in the AFH list of best albums. I just looked at this. 2019 2020 and 2021 you know three times and, and we we're not one of those people that do a list of 50 albums we typically pick you know 15 or less um skies on a tear black thought i mean at the, su the surprise of no one is another artist that when he drops it's a stop what you're doing moment and just coming off of cheat codes with danger mouse in 2022 an album that i personally feel deserved grammy recognition um you know, Tariq has already thrown his hat in the ring for 23. On April 15th, he will team with um, Leon Michaels and the L. Michaels Affair for an album called Glorious Game. And, you know, as we talk about J-Zone and drumming and, and replays, um, hip-hop heads have definitely heard the L. Michaels Affair and Leon Michaels. Um, he co-produced I Need a Dollar by Alo Black. Um, Jay-Z sampled him for American Gangster on Rock Boys and the Winner Is, that's the Manahan Street Band, which he was part of. He is one of these guys that um, is, is a younger person that carries on the tradition of funk soul, um, you know, has worked with Lee Fields, I believe worked with um, the late Sharon, uh, you know, Sharon King, um, Sharon Jones, excuse me, um, you know, and a host of, of other people. And he's got that sound. So I'm super excited for this. They put out, um, you know, one song already called Grateful, which you can find on AFH. And yeah, I mean, Black Thought is in a great season right now where, you know, at a time when the roots are supposed to drop, um, you know, th there has been reports, Questlove said it himself, that an album will, will be turned in by March. It might be a Black Thought dominant 2023. And I think anyone in hip hop is here for that. Yeah, man, it's been awesome. We haven't had a roots album in a long time. But Black Thought has given us as much musical content as I can recall ever. At, at this point, uh, The Roots got, what, like uh, five or six albums now? Six or seven? Um, um, somewhere around there. You mean total? Uh, yeah. Oh, no, they're well, I mean, I believe they're at like 13 now. And that 13? Wow. Yeah, the, the Roots have a ton of albums. And that you know, it gets murky on whether or not to count organics. And they did, you know, an album with Elvis Costello and they did the joint with John Legend, Wake Up. And yeah, I mean, right, the roots right, are right. at it, but at no point in their career have they gone this long without a release. And it's still, you know, from 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 Quest Mouth, it's, it's still called The Endgame, which is a title that has been in the works for six years. You know, you go back on AFH and there was there was talk that, you know, Ninth Wonder and Salam Remy were were partially producing this album, I think, has continued to evolve. So, again, when we talk about catalog and, you know, things coming to the light. I'm excited for that. Whether or not we get that, there was a single that hit radio. Um, it's not on the DSPs. 
featured Erica Badu and Tierra Wack. Um, Funk Flex played it in New York. Cosmic Kev played it in Philly. But I'm here for all that. But I do believe we are going to get this Black Thought album. I'll use a word that's not grammatically correct, irregardless. And um, I'm here for it. And I hope we get some drops between now and April 14th when uh, when that's coming out. Yeah, they got 14 albums. Um, and last one was 2014. So Black Thought now um, has got... Uh, how many how many does he have solo i'm trying to think because three three streams of thought and then um and then he did the cheat codes wasn't part of that so that's four solo albums plus this and you know there's been he did he did like a a, a download joint back in the day with the money making jam boys like thought has a catalog yeah so he's got like an impressive solo catalog at this point um you've got the five you just mentioned um, and he's kept us, you know, he's almost kept us at a clip of one per year since the roost kind of had a hiatus, uh, at least starting since, uh, you know, 2018. Back, yeah, in 2018. So it's great to see him have this output um, and to see him not be hampered. Uh, I think that the the roots having the, the residency with Jimmy Fallon has definitely helped with that. Um, and it takes the pressure off the roots. You know, yeah. I think a lot of times these groups get frustrated because one wants to make music and the others aren't ready or, you know, vice versa. And this allows everyone to kind of do their thing at their own pace, which I think is great. Absolutely. You know, the listener wins and thought, I believe, you know, just like Sky Zoo, you know, just like, um, just like a lot of people continues to get better. Um, and that's so great to see because I remember when LL Cool J made an album called Exit 13 and we're like, yo, somebody has 13 albums and here you go. Like, people continue to build catalog and and write new chapters in their legacies including yeah. him so for sure yeah. for sure so uh on that note any other new music you got to discuss nah, man i'm here for more of it i'm hoping it's going to be a bountiful month in 2023 but that's it for today so what's your song of the week you know what man i drove uh i drove a lot yesterday i went to new york and back and i saw our dear cohort bonita um so i was listening to an album that doesn't get the respect it deserves it's a og album jvc force doing damage and for anyone you know we're talking about prince paul and the bomb squad and the beastie boys you know innovative sampling in the late 80s this album is phenomenally produced and um kurt kazow i believe produced a lot of it there's a joint called take it away and that song if you if you only know the jvc force for strong island or maybe you don't know them at all Play the album, but start with Take It Away. Just great, great, great rapping and production. So I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go legacy with it. What about you? So I'm gonna go with uh one of the ones off the Sky Zoo joint. Um, this is called hundred to One, uh, off the mind of a saint. There are many, many highlights on the album, but this one hit me in a particular way. It's the first one I put on the playlist. Um, but uh, you know, it's a great entry point. But you know, I would listen to the whole thing because it's definitely meant to be consumed as a project. Uh, but it's dope. Yeah, I was just thinking that too. You know, I love that it's on the playlist, but this is definitely much like Three Feet High and Rising. It's a lean back experience. So do that, do both. But um, word, man. Well, it feels good to do this again. Wishing everyone that listens to us a happy 2023. Do us a favor, please. If you watch it, hit that thumbs up. If you listen on any of the DSPs, give us the rating, leave a review. There's something we can do better. Tell us. But we we do this for you, and it's not possible without you. So thank you, everyone. For sure.
All right, man. All right, peace. Peace.